Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning's reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, starting from verse 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nick, hey. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's good to see you here. Now, um, good to be here. you're at Up at Allgate. That's correct. It's good. How long have you been there for? Uh, I've been there about two and a half years. I um, came to Allgate as the young adults pastor um, and was that for two years, and then uh, six months ago or so, I was um, voted in as campus pastor or lead pastor of Allgate. Yeah, really cool. Now you may have picked up from uh, <laughs> that brief talking that he has a bit of an. You have a bit of an accent. I do, and it might link closely with something which I care about a little bit. <laughs> That's right. Um, where's your accent from? From Canada, and specifically. Um, I lived in Toronto, Canada. Yes. Home of the great Toronto Raptors. That's what we're talking about. So the first time I laid <laughs> eyes on Trent, 
I knew this was a friendship formed in heaven. <laughs> Love was, fr- friendship at first sight, mostly because of what he was wearing. Like, I was wearing an old Raptor stuff. As usual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a, got a jersey on, got a hat on. <laughs> no, nah, it's great. Yeah. It's been really good. And we've been getting to know each other over this last, what, two years almost? Yeah, about that. Um, we've been uh, meeting together. We had a meeting uh, for Nehemiah and stuff. It's been really, really great. Um, to see kind of what's happening. Do you want to tell us about your family? Yeah, well? sure. So I'm married to Emily um, at the back there, and we've got two uh, young boys. Uh, Josh, uh, dressed as Spider-Man today, and Noah, uh, dressed as his alter ego, Peter Parker. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, Josh is four, Noah's one and a half, Emily's 30, and um, <laughs> I'm 31. Um, you it's it's only fair. She doesn't look it, so it's good. Oh, there, um, there you go. <laughs> and I hope neither do I. <laughs> uh, yeah, Emily's a pediatric physio um, and does great work uh, in that area. And yeah, and I'm, I'm a pastor, so. Yeah, it's awesome. And you come from an Anglican background. Um, kind of, yeah. Kind of. Do you want to just yeah. share about a little bit yeah, about your background sure. and well, what brought you um, to be a Baptist? Uh, well, let me just. Let me tell you um, the full story. Well, this doesn't count in sermon time. I know Dave got a little extra time, so I, I think I deserve yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was born in a Christian family. Born. Um, oh, we lived in Holland for two years or so, then Canada for four years in Toronto. Um, and there was part of a Baptist church and that kind of thing. Came back to Australia, went to Ross Trevor Baptist for a year and a half, and then moved to St. Matthew's, which is where... Um, my parents uh, uh, were, were going to church before we traveled the world. And then kind of grew up at St. Matt's in a, like through their kids program, the young, their youth, uh, and then a young adult service, uh, like an evening young adult service I was part of for um, uh, 17 years or something. Um, but then uh, as I felt called to ministry, and there's a whole other story there, um, I did feel... Uh, to, to move on from that. So uh, from there, I went to City Reach Oakton and then got the call to um, uh, Hills Baptist, Orgate Baptist. Um, and and in kind of in between there, I also worked for a city Bible forum. So uh, a workplace evangelism organization helping Christians in the workplace figure out faith and work, how those uh, work together, how to share your faith in that secular working environment. Um, so yeah, that's a kind of my background and who I am. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, why don't I pray for you and then uh, I'll hand you over to uh, the Word of God. Uh, Dear God, I just thank you for your servant, Nick. And as uh, he comes before us this morning to speak your Word, may your Spirit richly dwell in him so that nothing gets in the way of what you're wanting to say to us this morning. Bless him, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Trent. Um, I promise that usually my intros are better, uh, but today we're going to start our sermon with a pretty cliche story, uh, and you've probably heard it before. Um, there was a man who was on his roof, and, uh, and it was flooding. The, the wall was flooding. Uh, let's just call this guy Bob. Is there a Bob here before I throw Bob under the bus? No? Good. Um, uh, so Bob was on his roof. Uh, the city was flooding around him, and he was in a lot of trouble, and he prays to God. God, save me, save me. 
And then uh, someone comes along in, in a rowboat and says, Bob, quick, get in my rowboat, you know, and let's go. Sorry, sorry mate, I'm, I'm too busy praying. Uh, I can't get in the boat right now. I'm too busy praying. And the rowboat is like, all right, and goes on, and Bob prays, God, save me, save me. And then someone in a motorboat, at this point, the water's come up quite a lot, quite a desperate situation. Someone in a motorboat comes along and says, quick, Bob, jump into the boat. Let's, let's go. And he says, no, 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 it's all right. God's going to save me. I'm, I'm praying. God's going to save me. It's all right. So the guy, all right, he drives off. Um, and then, uh, then, uh, then the, the, the water's like right up to his ankles onto, on the roof and a helicopter comes, drops a rope, says, quick, Bob, grab onto the rope. We'll, we'll pull you up. And he's like, no, no, it's all right. I'm praying to God. God is going to save me. And the helicopter's all right, and the helicopter goes away, and of course the water keeps coming up. Bob drowns, and he goes to heaven, and he goes and asks God, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, well, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more do you want? It's a funny story, pretty cliche, but it speaks to uh, what I think is a, is a, a challenge in the church today, which is learned helplessness. Learn helplessness. Bob uh, couldn't even see the help that was being sent and wouldn't, wouldn't stir himself into action of jumping into the boat or whatever because he had learned helplessness. The despair of the situation uh, paralyzed him. And I think in parts of the church today, and if we're honest, parts of ourselves are caught in learned helplessness. We've been given this great mission to make disciples of all nations, to, to turn ruins into revival, to use the sermon series title. But the task is so overwhelming to, to go and to compete in our society and culture, our overly secularized, sexualized, self-interested culture that's got its own discipleship program. We've got to go in and, and give another compelling image of, of following another king with all this opposition, all this pressure, and all these challenges that we face. And it's, it's very easy to fall into learned helplessness. And that holds us back. Because the, the task is too hard. It's too hard. Or we've run out of steam. Gosh, COVID and everything else, it's been exhausting. There's too much opposition that we're facing. Like these days, not only are we told what we can't say, we're told what we have to say. And most recently, we've learned that we're told what we're allowed to associate with or not associate with. There's too much opposition. Or even a more... Um, fatalist perspective of it doesn't even matter because God's going to do that work anyway. Are we just getting comfortable holding up in our nice, comfortable church communities waiting for the apocalypse? And there's always a million reasons not to do something, not to step out, not to go out, not to obey. And this is the context of today's passage, is Nehemiah is going to speak to the Israelites. He travels from, um, from Babylon to Israel to find Israel idle, lost in their despair and learned helplessness. 
It's been over 100 years since Cyrus released the exiles back to Israel, but the walls haven't been built. The walls haven't been built. This city is not a city, because in that day, a city is defined by its walls. There's no point. It was too hard a task. They've run out of steam. There's too much opposition. They're comfortable in their despair. The question I want to ask today is how do we fulfill our prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair? How do we fulfill our prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair? That's the question of today's passage. Now, um, you heard from Dave last week uh, the story of Nehemiah hearing about this desperate situation in Israel, and he is overwhelmed with despair, and he, he does something with that. He prays. He prays for months, and the king notices a change in Nehemiah. He notices that, that there's something off, there's something wrong, and so he asks Nehemiah what's wrong. And, uh, and then Nehemiah tells him, and he asks to go back to Jerusalem. And then um, in ver- 2 verse 6 is where we pick up, and Nehemiah does something here that I think often we forget to do, is ask big, ask big. Because not only did Nehemiah ask to go back to Jerusalem, which even that alone is a big ask from his position of power and prominence and privilege, but he asks, he has the audacity to ask the king, can you give me a letter to uh, provide, um, uh, to give me passage through, through to Jerusalem. He says, um, oh, the king asks how long he'll go, and he tells him. And then he says to the king, verse 7, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the, for the governors of the province beyond the river so that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He asks, not only will the king release him, but will the king protect him on his way to Dru- Judah, to Israel? And not only does he have the audacity to ask that, he asks the king to give the provisions, the supply, the resources to go and build the gates and the walls of the city he's going to. King of Babylon uh, to provide from his own storehouse, his own forests, uh, the rare and precious materials, uh, the timber to build a city in a different kingdom. The audacity to ask something that big. But Nehemiah tells us, the king granted me what I asked. Because I was able to ask with great winsome and eloquence and and, uh, appeal to his honor. And No, no, no. The king granted what he asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah asks big, and God delivers. God delivers. And I wonder, in the face of overwhelming despair, are our prayers too small? Is what we ask for too small? Anyway, Nehemiah uh, travels. He goes along uh, to, to um, go out to uh, Judah. Names are coming to me today. Um, but along the way, he, he does get passage through the, the other areas on his way to Jerusalem, including um, uh, through um, the areas of Sanballat and Tobiah. And these guys aren't happy with 
Nehemiah, or it says they're not, they're displeased greatly that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of God. These are the guys in charge of the, the areas around Israel. And they're not happy that someone's coming to help out this poor um, people in poverty. Because poverty profits the prosperous. And I think that's a big challenge for us prosperous people uh, up here in, in Mount Barker. Poverty profits uh, the pros- prosperous. Because uh, I imagine, there's not great detail given, but I imagine that um, Tobiah and Sambalat uh, benefited a lot from this, the, 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 the um, state that Israel was in. That they could go in and take whatever they want from uh, the community. Noah's my little ministry intern might come out and help me uh, at some points today, which is all good. Um, uh, they got free or very cheap labor from Israel. They could just go in, take whoever they saw, and bring them back to work in the mines or do whatever. Poverty prospers. Sorry, poverty profits the prosperous. So they're not happy. We're going to hear later on about the opposition that comes from that. But anyway, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem after a two-month trek, and he doesn't. He gets there, and he doesn't bound in and say, "All right, here, here I am, God's gift to Israel. Here's what we got to do." No, he, he gets there and he waits three days. He does nothing. He sits back and and stays, and 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 perhaps you know it's a long trek, about two-month trek, so maybe he's resting for a bit. But Nehemiah does actually reveal to us a little bit why he doesn't, or, or why he's slow in his, his, his approach. Nehemiah 2 verse 12, he says, he told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He wasn't telling anyone the calling God had on his life. Now, if I had a call from God to do something great and big and massive, I would want people to know about it. And, and to be honest, I'm really conflicted about this passage because I feel like if, if you have a call from God, a good thing to do is to talk to people about that, to go and, and to seek wisdom and guidance and to share it. But here's a, a, an example of someone actually concealing it, considering it for themselves before sharing it. And even Jesus did this. Like, again and again, Jesus would um, uh, do miracles and save people, and he'd tell them not to tell others, to be quiet. And you think, isn't this counterproductive? Isn't this, like, why would he do this? Part of the reason why Nehemiah is, is slow to share of his own calling is he wants understanding before action. He wants understanding before action. He's very slow. He's very secretive. He goes out at night to survey the the area, uh, to survey uh, Jerusalem. And here's a map of uh, Jerusalem at the time. Uh, It's not massive, uh, but that's where I'll highlight places where he goes. And um, if we just follow along with me, he goes around from verse 13 to inspect the damage. Like, what's the real case? What's actually going on in Jerusalem? He's heard some pretty bad stuff. He's got to go out and see for himself. 
So by night, he went, goes out, here's a closer view, he goes out by the valley gate um, there uh, towards the jackal well and the dung gate. What a, what a gate to be called, the dung gate. Examining the walls of Jerusalem. And what does he find? They've been broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. It's a pretty bad situation. He goes across to the fountain gate and the king's pool um, over this way. Um, but then he, he, you know, it looks like he wants to go all the way around. But the, the walls are so destroyed and decimated, he can't even go that way. And so there's not enough room for his mount to get through. So he goes uh, back up the, the valley. There's a mountain always on the right there on the left. He's back up the valley. Oh, sorry, I'm pressing the wrong Direction back up the valley to to continue examining the wall and finally turns back and enters through the valley gate. And he goes and sees for himself the state of Israel, the walls torn down, the gates destroyed by fire. And then he gathers the community. Now's the time for some communication. Now the town hall meeting to, to share the situation, what's actually going on. And in, in um, Josephus' writings about uh, Nehemiah, so a, a Jewish uh, scholar, um, he says, he um, uh, shares that Nehemiah, like the story, the way he tells us, Nehemiah brought them to the gates of the temple, the, out the front of the temple, so that on the top of the hill they could turn around and see all of Jerusalem and see the walls. And looking around, Nehemiah shares the sobering vision of reality. He says to the, uh, the officials, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, he brings everyone uh, together. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and his gates burned. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He says, come let us build so that we may no long, longer suffer shame. The situation that they're in is Jerusalem in ruin, his gates burned, the city is not a city because the walls are destroyed. And obviously there's economic and practical impacts of that, but even more important, there's a theological impact of that. Because what the, the walls represented to the city is, is God's protection in that day. And if the walls are destroyed, it sends a message that God's abandoned Israel. They're in a state as a, as a people, as a community of shame, of being abandoned. They're not living as the people of God. That is what the situation they find themselves. Overwhelming despair. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah, uh, he also shares the inspiring vision of opportunity. The inspiring vision of opportunity. He says, that's what it is. That's not how it has to be. Let us build the walls. Let us build the walls. Remember when Nehemiah earlier, he said, he, said he hadn't shared what God put in his heart. Here he shares God's call. Let's build the walls. But he doesn't make it about himself. 
He doesn't say, I've come here to build the walls. I've come, here's God's gift to Israel. I'm the solution. I'm your savior. Like, I will come and I'll lead a building project and we'll build the walls and it'll be great. No, he says, let us, let all of us come together and work together to build the walls, to build this city of God. Nehemiah has a clear calling, but he doesn't make the calling about himself. The call, if you have a call on your life or if you feel God is drawing you into a specific role or ministry or task or mission, calling is not about me. Calling is about mission. It's about what God is doing, not what you are doing. And Nehemiah, he invites Israel into that calling, into that purpose of God of building the, 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 uh, the city together, building the walls together. And in and, and chapter 3, and we'll hear next week, um, uh, Nehemiah, like, he gives a vision of everyone has a part to play. Everyone has um, something to contribute and add to this vision. And it outlines how each, uh, all of Israel will, will, will build outside their own house. Everyone's involved in this task of building together. And so he, Nehemiah gives an inspiring vision of opportunity of what Israel could be, what Jerusalem could be. But it's still not enough. I'm sure others have risen up and said, let's do something, but it's still, nothing has happened. It's been a hundred years since Cyrus returned the exiles, maybe 70 years since the temple had been rebuilt, 15 years since Ezra's return and reform, and yet nothing had been done on the walls. They were in learned helplessness, overwhelming despair. But what did Nehemiah give them? that turned this apathy into action. He gives an inspiring vision of God's goodness, an inspiring vision of the goodness of God. This um, verse 18, it says, And he told them, I told them the hand of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Nehemiah shared a testimony. He, it's, it's unfortunate that the words aren't in here, but I imagine he would have said, let's build this together. And I'll have you know, God is already working. Because do you know what I asked the king of Babylon? Not only did I ask for, uh, for release, I asked for a passage. I asked for the materials. And he was happy to give them. God is clearly at work. God is doing something. God is moving already. He gives this great vision of what God is already doing, this great vision of the goodness of God, and that breaks this cycle of learnt helplessness. And the Israelites, they respond. They say, let us rise up. Let's go. Let's build. So how, how do we find prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair? by capturing a vision of the goodness of God. By capturing a vision of the goodness of God. Now, I um, often, when, when reading Scripture, a great 
thing to ask is, where do, where do we fit into this passage? Where, where do we fit into this? And, and I think often um, Nehemiah shared as a great leadership model. There's a lot of wisdom that we can gain from how he leads and how he inspires Israel into action. And now certainly scripture is written for us, but it's not written about us. And to think that, that Scripture is written about us, that, that we are the main characters, very self-centered and egotistical. I put it to you, we are not Nehemiah in this story. We're the Israelites. The question we need to ask ourselves and ask of the, test, uh, ask of the test, text is whether Nehemiah is presented as a model uh, to lead like or a forerunner of the king to follow. Because there's, there's so many parallels that we can't ignore between Nehemiah and Jesus. Nehemiah humbling himself from a place of power and privilege to seek and serve Israel. The opposition he faces from both outside and inside the people of God. The task of building up the walls and for restoring the dwelling place of God. And the parallel of making disciples to build God's kingdom is parallels. And after Jesus' death and, and even after his resurrection, uh, there's this scene in, in the end of Matthew's gospel where they're scattered, they're inactive, they're hiding, they're not sure what they're meant to be doing. And there's still opposition. Just, just before the Great Commission, the, this, there's this little story of uh, the... Um, Sorry, the, uh, the soldiers are, are bribed and the um, Roman leaders are bribed to say that the disciples move the body. So there's still all this external opposition from the government, from their culture. And then this space of not knowing what to do, or maybe knowing what to do, but not having the energy to do it, in overwhelming despair. And Jesus appears to them and they worship him and then he gives this commission. He gives this commission. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has given his disciples a mission a task, go and make disciples, baptizing them, including them into the kingdom of God and teaching them to obey, you know, that, that transformation that uh, the disciples would be transformed to be more like Jesus. And there's a promise, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. There's a great task set before us. And I'm not talking about the amalgamation. That's easy. Right? I'm not talking about a building program. That's easy. Making disciples in Mount Barker, in your homes, in your workplace, wherever God's called you to live as a disciple, that's a tough job. It's a tough gig. Making disciples, like I said before, in this overly secularized, overly sexualized, overly self-centered culture that we find ourselves in. You know, I think Dave shared this last week, but Mount Barker has the highest instance of no religion 
in South Australia. Like the most secular, the most non-Christian or non-religious uh, town in, in, a, in South Australia. We also um, have faced the largest pandemic uh, we've ever seen, not of um, coronavirus, but mental health crisis the world has ever known, I feel. There's increasing opposition. And we've heard recently in the news with Andrew Thornburn and, and all kinds of um, instances of Christians facing opposition, facing persecution. We look out into this, this task that Jesus has given us. We look out over Mount Barker and when we might feel overwhelming despair, what Jesus sees, he sees sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus has sent us into the world, into Mount Barker, into the Adelaide Hills to make disciples, to bring hope and healing into these areas of despair. And so how do we fulfill our prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair, by capturing a vision of the goodness of God. So my dad used to say, there's a million reasons why not to do something. What's the reason to do it? And the reason to do it, to make disciples, is God is good. God is good. This, we sang um, Man of Sorrows before. It gives a great image of God's goodness. God saw the world and the world is broken. The world is hurting. The world is angry against him. The world hates God. And yet he sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus saw the worst the world had to offer. They beat him. They mocked him. They crucified him. But even on the cross, Jesus said of the very people putting him to death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And Jesus was died and buried, and in that moment of that despair, he rose again. He came back to life. He defeated death. And he, that, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is promised to all who would believe in, in him, be released and forgiven and saved from sin and death and despair. We have a God who is good. And he's shown it to us through Jesus. And Jesus says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the king of Mount Barker. He is the king of the world. He is already working. He is already working. And there is so many stories of God's goodness throughout, uh, throughout the hills, throughout Mount Barker, throughout Australia, throughout the world. Stories of God's goodness. And now what I think we need more and more, especially as we press into more and more God's mission and, and take on big uh, tasks that are scary and overwhelming, what we need more and more is testimonies. Stories of God's goodness in the world. Stories of God working powerfully through his people, through miraculous means, so that the church could be captivated by that vision of God's goodness. Now, I, I admire Mount Barker Baptist. I haven't been heaps, in, I've been involved more recently with the amalgamation, but not much before then. 
But I admire how you've been stepping out in faith uh, and very active in ministry throughout Mount Barker, what I've heard already. You are, there is work God is doing through you. And I look forward to hearing, <clears throat> excuse me, hearing the testimonies that will come out uh, from Mount Barker Baptist, the testimonies of God's goodness. Because that's what we need. That's what we need in order to fill our prophetic purpose. We need that vision of God's goodness. Now, let me finish by returning to our cliche story that we begin with. And this time, I'm going to reframe it uh, to what I think is really going on in the world. So there's a flood, as we said before, and and the water's rising, and Bob uh, is there, uh, and he's like, oh, no, there's a flood. But, of course, he knows that he's going to be saved because he trusts in Jesus. He knows he's going to be saved. And, um, And he prays to God, oh, I'm saved. God, can you rescue those that family next door because i know they're not christian whatever rescue that family next door and initially the water's you know the water's getting knee deep and and um he thinks oh it's a bit too cold and uncomfortable i'm not going to go warn them or anything i'm just going to go get comfy in my attic and on my roof so he does that the water keeps rising and he prays to god god please save that family and then someone comes with a, ro- with a rowboat and says, hey, Bob, do you need a rowboat for anything? I've got a spare rowboat here. And he's like, no, 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 that's all right. I'm just here busy praying for my friends over there. And so the rowboat moves on. And then the water keeps going higher and higher. And then someone brings along a motorboat, a speedboat. and says, hey, Bob, do you need a speedboat for anything? It's like, no, 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 that's all right. I don't want to inconvenience you. I... Um, uh, I'm just busy praying for my friends over there. The speedboat goes off of there. Water keeps going up. It's reached the top of the building. A helicopter comes along. And they call out of the helicopter, Bob, do you need a helicopter for anything? And he says, no, no, that's all right. You know, I don't want to convince you. The, you know, this, this water is too choppy. It's too dangerous. The wind is too strong. Don't worry about it. And then Bob is saved. Bob is rescued. And his rescuer says, Bob, why didn't you go save your neighbors? And Bob says, well, I couldn't. And rescuer God says, well, I sent you a rowboat. I sent you a a speedboat. I sent you a helicopter. I told you how to swim. Friends, God has given us everything we need to fulfill our prophetic purpose of making disciples. And we need to be captured by the vision that God is good and he's working in this world. We need to hear the stories that God, of God working in the world. What turned Israel from apathy into action uh, was a story of God's goodness. They unlearned their helplessness through testimony of God's goodness. Let's keep telling that story. Let's keep telling that story. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you and praise you that you are a God who loves us, God who values us, God who saves us, and you're a God who sends us out on mission. Lord, we pray you would... 
uh, equip us for that, that you would continue to show us your goodness, show us your glory, that that would inspire us into action, that we wouldn't be apathetic, that we wouldn't be indifferent to the state of the world, but we'd be active in obedience to you, of making disciples, of seeking justice and peace in the world. And we pray all this for your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.